I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. Let's talk about the big promises of God. God says, you are, you can, you have, and you will. Here's where we are in the series. You are forgiven. God's answer to guilt. You are never alone. God's answer to fear. You have a way out. God's answer to temptation. Here is message number four in the series. You have a great future. God's answer to failure. God's answer to failure. And the verse for tonight is, the minute I begin to say it, you will know it. It is one of the best known verses in the Bible. It's from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29 and verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Let me just say right up front, this is one of the best known and most beloved verses in all the Bible. It is quoted. It is memorized. It is memed. You know the word memed? It shows up in memes on the internet. It shows up on posters, on t-shirts. And when they do those, when they do those surveys on Bible Gateway and Version, this is the only verse from the book of Jeremiah that is universally popular around the world. In fact, Bible Gateway said that in the year 2018, out of two billion page views, two billion page views on Bible Gateway, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 was number one, the most searched, the most looked for verse on the entire Bible Gateway website. It is a wonderful promise from God. In order for us to understand this tonight, we got to get a little bit of background. We know, of course, that Jeremiah was written, the book was written in the time of the Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah 29 is a letter from God through Jeremiah the prophet to his disobedient children who had been taken away from Jerusalem and were languishing in the pagan foreign capital of Babylon. They were there because God had told them, if you continue to forget me, you will suffer for it. If you continue to abuse the Sabbath, you will pay the price. If you turn to idolatry, eventually my patience will run out and you will go into captivity. But the Jews thought that would never happen to them. You remember, don't you, that Nebuchadnezzar came three times to the city of Jerusalem. He came once in 605 BC. That's when he took away Daniel and his friends. He came a second time in 597 BC. That's when another group was taken away. He came for the last time in 586 BC. That's the one where he not only took away what was left of the leaders of the people, but he burned down the temple so that no stone was remaining. He tore down the walls of Jerusalem. He left the great city of God in ruins, in ruins. Jeremiah 29 is not associated with 605 B.C. or 586. It's that middle one when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in 597 B.C. And the Jews were taken away 
into captivity. All hope was gone. Let me say it to you this way. It is hard for me tonight to explain to you how the Jews felt about the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the ultimate bad guys of the ancient world. In their day, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest man in the world. The kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom in the world. And the Babylonian army, the fiercest army in the world. I mean, they would do, they would do terrible acts of atrocity. It was nothing to them to come in and, and burn a whole city down. Men, women, children, and everybody. Sometimes they would do things like, they, they would capture the leaders of a nation. And they would put hooks through their jaws like this. And, and, and drag them across the desert with hooks in their jaws. They would do things like this. If they judged that a certain city that they had conquered was insufficiently servile, if they thought there was still a rebellious spirit, that the Babylonians would send out an order and they would say, bring all the males to the city gate, the little baby boys, the infant boys, the 10-year-old boys, the teenage boys, the young adult boys, the, the young husbands, the middle-aged men, the older men, the, the, the senior adult men. Bring all the males of the city to the city gate. The Babylonians would give the order and every man in that city would be beheaded and a mountain of severed skulls would be placed by the gate of the city. Sort of a mute testimony. This is what happens to anybody who dares to challenge mighty Babylon. And you may say to me, how do we know this? We know this because the Babylonians wrote it down. They weren't shy about bragging. They wrote in their own records. So we know how, how cruel they were. We know how bloodthirsty they were. We know how rapacious they were because they talked about it. Now the people of God, the Jews of God, the Israel who belong to God because of their disobedience, they have been marched across the desert six, seven hundred miles away. If Jerusalem is over there, they might as well be on the other side of the world. They are in captivity. They are in the great city of Babylon and they are going to be there, God said. He told them how long they are going to be there. He said, because of your sin. You're going to be there not 10 years, not 20, not 30, not 40, not 50. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 long years, which really meant if you were 50 years old when you were taken into captivity, you do the math. The earliest you could ever go back home would be when you're 120, which meant if you're 50 when you went there, you were never going to see Jerusalem again. And if you were 10 or 20 or 30, you'd be a very, very, very old man or woman if you had any chance at all of ever going back. What it really meant was, once you were taken to captivity, you might as well settle down in Babylon, whether you like it or not. That's where you are going to stay. And understandably, the Jews who felt like God had made a covenant with them, and he did, they thought they were God's chosen people. And God said, yes, you are. They really thought God had forgotten them, that in the punishment was so harsh, they thought God didn't care about them anymore. And that's what Jeremiah 29 is all about. It's a letter from God through Jeremiah the prophet in Jerusalem to the unhappy, disillusioned, discouraged exiles in Babylon who felt, who understood it was their fault they were there. And they felt God had turned away from them. Has God forgotten us? 
You see, they made two mistakes. Number one, they thought they would never end up in Babylon. That led them to false confidence. Number two, they thought they would never get out of Babylon. That led them to despair. You see, we face the same danger tonight. Either when we expect what God has never promised or refuse to believe what he has promised. A long time ago, we used to sing a chorus. I haven't heard it in a long time, but every promise in the book is mine. You know that chorus. You used to sing it a long time ago. All right. It's true. Yes, it is. But not every promise means what we think it means. Yes, every promise in the book is ours, rightly understood, rightly interpreted, and rightly applied. So what do we have in this great verse? Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Here is hope for those who have failed. I call this verse rock bottom truth. Here is a verse for men and women who have stumbled, who have suffered, who have failed, and who have fallen. You know what they say, when you finally hit rock bottom, there's nothing to do but look up. As we think about this beloved verse, keep two things in mind. Number one, God will not always do what we expect Him to do, but number two, He will always do what He says He will do. Let me repeat that. God will not always do what we expect him to do, but he will always do what he says he will do. So then, very briefly tonight, three tremendous truths from this beloved verse in the book of Jeremiah. Number one, this verse certainly teaches us, God is thinking about us all the time. God is thinking about us all the time. I know, God says, the thoughts that I think towards you. What an amazing thought that is. God thinks about us, the creator of the universe. He remembers us. He knows where we are. He knows what we have done. We are never lost to him. We don't always think about each other. We're all, we're too forgetful. We forget birthdays and anniversaries. We forget Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and, and sometimes Easter and sometimes, um, sometimes our wedding anniversary. We forget names and the older we get, the more we need those name tags. Not so we can know who everybody else is, so we can remember who we are. We just, we just that way. We don't always remember what we should remember. It's fact of the matter is most of us, most of us are better about remembering bad things. We remember hard times. We remember what people have done to us. We remember the slights. We remember the slings, the arrows of misfortune. We remember every insult. We, are, we, we kind of have an inbuilt grievance meter. We forget everything. But we see somebody, somebody who said something to us 27 years ago. And we get angry all over again. That's just the way we are. Now, I've already mentioned the coronavirus. Well, one 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 interesting story came out. You remember when that cruise ship just a few weeks ago was off Japan and they the the, the Diamond Princess and they had so many people quarantined on that uh, on that cruise ship and it turned out you know hundreds of them ended up getting the coronavirus. Well, because people have cell phones, there are a number of articles written where they interviewed, you know, they, they got off eventually, but while they were still cruising around, there were interviews with the people who were on there. And so in one article I read, they interviewed by phone a man who was on the Diamond Princess with his wife, Ellis Vincent. 
a 76-year-old retired airline executive, thought it was going to be a wonderful trip, a wonderful cruise, and here you are. And, you know, those people were locked up in their rooms basically almost 24 hours a day. He was there locked up with his wife. And they asked him how it's going. And this is actually what he said, quote, She has an excellent memory. She is able to bring up every transgression I've ever had. And he said, I believe she is not finished. (laughs) Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad what God says? What God says to us. Their sins and iniquities. What? I will remember no more. We remember what others have done. God says, God says, I will not remember the sins of my own people against them. He forgets our sin. He remembers us. We say, out of sight, out of mind. But God never says that because we are never out of his sight. Although he has the whole world to rule, he never forgets his own. In fact, it's interesting. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, it's uh, this, this word that's translated thinking or thoughts. And in some translations, it says, I know the plans I have for you. But it's the same word, same word in Hebrew. Plans or thoughts or thinking, he repeats it three times in one verse so that we would not miss it. It's God's way of saying, I know you are not happy to be there, but I remember you. I know you want to go home, but I have not forgotten you. The Jews needed to know this. They felt abandoned in Babylon. Seventy years is a long, long time. And that's what God said. He said, you're going to be there for 70 years. And that's good news and bad news. You think I've forgotten about you, but you are here because you forgot me. And it's true that I'm punishing you for your disregard of my commands, but my punishment does not diminish my affection for you. You are forever in my thoughts. You are still my people. I have not forgotten you. So understand what this really means. God knows what he is thinking even when we don't. God knows what he is doing even when we have no clue. You know how we look at life? We look at life through a little keyhole. We, we look at it and I can see now, instead of the great crowd, I can see just, just, just different people here. I can see one or two of you way back there. We look through the keyhole. We think that's all there is to see. That's how we look at life. But God doesn't look through the keyhole. He sees it all. Past, present, and future. This much is clear. God is thinking about us always. I know the thoughts I have towards you. Number two, I think this is very important. God's thoughts toward us are good. Because you know, if somebody says, hmm, I've been thinking about you, (laughs) right? That could be good news. That could be bad news. I mean, if the boss calls you in, that could be good or bad. If your spouse, if your wife, men, if your wife says, I've been thinking about you, uh, that just, you know, that literally, you know, you might want to go ride your bike. You just don't, you, 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 <laughs> you don't really know. So what we have to know is, oh God, I know you're thinking about me, but are your thoughts good or bad? Our text says thoughts of peace and not of evil. Another translation says plans for welfare and not for evil. Uh, Eugene Peterson says plans to take care of you, not abandon you. The NLT says plans for good and not for disaster. I think the greatest question all of us have tonight is not is there a God? Because we know there's a God. 
What we want to know is, what's he thinking about us? Is he for us or is he against us? Because if God is for us, we're going to be okay. But if he is neutral, I don't like that. And if he's against us, there's no hope whatsoever. Here is God's answer. God says, I know the thoughts that I have for you. And they are thoughts of good and not for evil. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. You may think that I have forgotten about you in Babylon, but I have not. Listen, this is not some kind of spiritual rabbit's foot. This verse was given to the Jews who are in captivity. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a get out of Babylon free card. What God is saying is, I sent you to Babylon. I am thinking about you while you're in Babylon. I have not forgotten you in Babylon. I am with you in Babylon. I will give you a future in Babylon. And when the time is right, I will bring you home from Babylon. Mostly, this verse is God's way of saying, I still love you even though you have blown it. I still have great plans for you in the future. And the future starts now, not just 70 years from now. But what about when we sin? Yeah, but we sin all the time. This is God's word to his sinning, discouraged children. God cannot think evil toward us. He cannot. He cannot. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn us? Christ Jesus died, yes, and rose from the dead and sits at God's right hand where he intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulate shall distress, shall persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword. As it is written, we are being carried off to death all day long for your sake. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life Angels or principalities, things present or things to come or any power or height or depth or anything else in all God's creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's thoughts to us are good. You have sinned. God's thoughts toward you. He loves you. He loves you. Maybe tonight you're going through a hard time. Maybe tonight you're struggling. Maybe tonight you're wondering, is God really on my side or not? What more can God do? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? You know what? It's not good to go to Babylon not good you got to sin a lot to get there it's a punishment but listen to me it's a good thing to be in Babylon 
if when you finally lose everything, listen, when you lose everything, everything, and you finally realize you've hit the bottom now because Babylon for the Jews was the bottom of the bottom. If then you look up, it's no fun to go there. It's no fun to be there. But it's a good thing in God's plan to be there. If when you were there, finally, finally you realize what you've done. Finally you look up and say, Lord, Lord. So it is, and I've pointed this out to you. We, uh, we learn this more in pain than we do in pleasure. We learn this more in the intensive care unit that we do at the birthday party. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. You know, uh, I've mentioned the Super Bowl. Did I mention it? I mentioned it again. Super Bowl champions, the great Kansas City Chiefs. I just, it just, just comes flowing out from me, you know. We're so happy about that in Kansas City. And our great quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, did I mention him? You know, the whole city just went nuts, went nuts. I was thinking about this. Over, over my lifetime, which is a long time, I've been to many, many Super Bowl parties. I've had the hors d'oeuvres. I've had the chips. I've had the desserts, right? I've had the soft drinks. I've hung out with people I know and love. Been to many, many Super Bowl parties. Have never yet learned one useful thing from any Super Bowl party I've ever been to. They're fun, but I learned nothing from them. But as a pastor, many times I've gone to the funeral home and I've stood with the brokenhearted saints of God as they prepare to lay to rest somebody they love more than life itself. You know, you find out what you really believe at that moment. It's not the Super Bowl. I'm all for the Super Bowl party, but you really don't learn much there. It's over here where you're really losing something. And evidently, the Jews had to go to Babylon. They couldn't learn it over here in Jerusalem. So God says, I'm going to put you in the one place you never wanted to be. Because when you're there, stripped of everything you valued, at long last, you will turn to me. Turn to me. So I uh, was talking to a friend. This was early in the year. And... uh, he said to me about the last year, he said, well, <laughs> he said, thank God that year's over. You ever had that feeling in January? Thank God we're done with that. There's no place to go but up now. It had been a really rough year for him. And he had gone through a lot of personal reversals. And he had seen his marriage just fall to pieces. And you know, whenever that happens, it's not just one thing. Is there's always a number of things going on there. And my friend said, he said, this last year was awful. But he said, I thank God for it. Listen. He said, because I feel like in the last year, God pushed me out to the edge. He pushed me out to the edge. And I realized I'm a man in desperate need of grace. Desperate need of grace. It's no fun to live on the edge. It's no fun to be pushed out here. It's, it's certainly a terrible thing to see, to see your dreams come down to the dust. But my friend said, I have learned 
that I am a person desperately, hits the word he used, desperately in need of grace. On one level, we all know that's true. It's just that we forget it until life falls apart around us. One other great truth and we're done. God intends to give us a future filled with hope. And you know that, to give you a hope and a future, a hope and a future. It's in the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting, a couple of interesting words there. And they're kind of, they're, they're, this is not a technical explanation, but they're, they're kind of joined together like this in the original. So hope in the future, you could translate it a hopeful future. That's good. That's good. But you know, they tell us, the Hebrew scholars, which I definitely am not, the Hebrew scholars tell us one of those words means, this word translated future, watch this, it means an appointed end, an appointed end. It means the culmination of a long process to bring you to, a, to, to an appointed end. You could legitimately translate this. I am going to bring you to an appointed end. Well, you really couldn't legitimately translate what I'm going to say. But what it means is something like this. I, you, my children, you think I've forgotten you. You don't like where you are. But I'm going to bring you to the place of divine appointment. When everything is finished, you're going to be glad you finally got there. You, you with me now? God is saying, it's not just general, a hopeful future. I, God's saying, you think I've forgotten you. Oh, no, no, no. I am working out my plan for you. You are in Babylon as part of my plan. I sent you there. It's ultimately for your good. And when I have worked out everything, you're going to come to the appointed, expected end. And you're going to be glad you finally Got there. That's really what it means. God has an appointed end for his people. God knows what he's doing and he is doing it. And by the way, by the way, do you realize that on either end of this 70 years of captivity, there's a pagan king. There's a pagan king who sent them to Babylon. There's another pagan king who's going to bring them back. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, sent them there. Cyrus, called in Isaiah by the Lord, my servant Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, is the one who gave the decree that let them go back home. The end they expect will come, though not exactly as they expected, and not for 70 years, but they will see what God intended. Now, write this down, write this down, write this down. God has no unfinished plans. God has no unfinished plans. He is going to complete his work in you. He's going to accomplish in your life everything he always intended to accomplish. That's nothing more than what Philippians 1, 6 says. God who started a good work will continue it and complete it in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has no unfinished plans. They will see what God intended from the beginning. Seen in this light. Jeremiah 29, 11 becomes a great comfort, especially when we're going through hard times. It teaches us that God is thinking about us, that his thoughts toward us are good, and that when his purposes have been completed, he will bring our troubles to their appointed end. This, my friends, is the hope we need. This is the future we need. So, Marlene and I, last August, celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary we graduated together in may of 1974 
from Tennessee Temple College, later university, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We had just gotten engaged, and then we graduated, and we were going to we were going to postpone our wedding for half a year, year, something like that. And in June, some things happened. They were all good. And we suddenly decided, why should we wait to Christmas? Why should we wait to June of the next year? Why don't we just get married this summer? Because I was going to start Dallas Theological Seminary, so why not? And so between the end of June of 1974 and when we got married on August 22nd, 1974, in Mesa, Arizona, that's the Phoenix area. Marlene went home to get ready for everything. And having fixed things up with my mom and dad, I went back to Chattanooga to work at the Chattanooga Glass Company. I worked there for about six weeks because they paid really big money, really big money. I think I was making six fifty an hour. That was real money back in 1974. They hired me at the Chattanooga Glass Company. And you know what, you know what we made at the Chattanooga Glass Company? We made something we hardly ever see anymore. It was a big factory that made basically nothing but Coke bottles. Remember Coke bottles? Everything's plastic now or these metal cans. But back in that day, Coke bottles, right? The way God intended Coke should be drunk, right out of a glass bottle. And they hired me because, well, they needed somebody to, they needed somebody with a very particular skill set. They gave me a broom. <laughs> and they said, you look like a man who can push a broom. And so for six or seven weeks in the summer of 1974, around that, and this was a great big factory and these gigantic machines. And I don't know what all they had mixing back there, but they mixed it and it went into the big machine. And you could see the Coke bottles, these brand new fresh Coke bottles. Just, they, they were coming around like this, just coming around 24 hours a day. They were making those Coke bottles, but because it was a mechanical system, you know, they would, they would break, they would fall, glass would go everywhere. So they needed a trained professional. Somebody with my skill set who could take that broom and for eight hours just sweep up the, the, the shards of glass. And I got to tell you, it's the best job I ever had, I think, you know, because uh, these were cool guys on the coat, you know, doing the Coke machine thing, you know. And I just thought it was great. All I had to do was just stand there and uh, watch the bottles just come rolling. And when one would break, and they broke all the time, and just, just sweep the glass up and otherwise mind my own business and stay out of my stay out of their way, right? So I got along great there. Had a lot of had a lot of fun and work eight hours and sometimes work a little bit more than that and get a little bit of extra money. And, and, and one, one, one night I got to talking to one of the guys who'd been there for many, many years. And here's the thing about the Coke bottles. They would, whatever that mixture was, it would come out into the big machine and it would go into the, go into the molds and it come out shaped. Perfect. Just this long line, this unending long line of beautiful light green Coke bottles, right? come out and they'd go down and it's coming out fast which is why some of them would fall and they would go right from there into the oven and I, I said to the guy these things are already hot why are you putting them into the oven that doesn't make any sense to me he said we got to make them strong I said what do you mean he said watch this 
So he had a little forceps of some kind, a little fork or something. And he just, he reached out and picked up a bottle that just come out of that machine. And he said, look at this. He said, now don't touch it, it's too hot. And he let go of it and it hit the floor and just shattered into a million pieces. I said, what is up with that? He said, the reason we've got to put the Coke bottles into this heat machine is to cure them. If we don't cure them, the glass is not strong. And when people, when they just bump their bottles, if we didn't do it, the the bottles, if they bumped each other, they would just immediately break. We can't have that. So those hot, freshly formed bottles would come right out of the machine, right into the oven, where they would be baked at extremely high temperature. And something about that cured that glass and made it strong and they came out of that oven and he said see he got one that came out of the oven he dropped it the same way it just bounced it just bounced it didn't break at all those bottles had to be cured in the heat or they will shatter curing in the heat is necessary and it's beneficial may I say to you that's true for you and me We are never going to be strong until we go through the fire. We're never going to be strong until we go through the furnace. What does the book of Job say? Job 23, 10, he knows the way that I take when he has tried me. What that means is when he has put me through the furnace of affliction, I will come forth as gold. We cannot escape the furnace. We can't. It's part of God's plan for us God keeps an eye on the temperature and on the clock. You will not be kept into the, in the furnace one second too long. When your trial, when your struggles have come to their appointed end, appointed by God himself, you will come forth stronger than before. And, and I tell you, we as Christians need to get a hold of this truth, not just for ourselves, but in the way we look at other Christians. I know, I know some, some, some Christians, when they see a fellow believer who is struggling, they will say things like, well, he deserved that. He needed that. She must be a terrible sinner for God to put her through that. I never think that. Whenever I see a believer going through a really hard time, I think to myself, there must be a lot of gold there. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, when he has finished, I will come forth as gold. Let me say this, wrap all this up. I know what I'm saying tonight is it's not something new. It's something we believe. But it's hard to hear this, hard to think this way when your marriage fails, when your children struggle, when some of your grandkids get in trouble, when the cancer comes back, when suddenly you're fired, when a friend betrays you. Let me tell you, no Bible verse, including Jeremiah 29, 11, no Bible verse can take away the pain of this world. But Jeremiah 29, 11 does this. It leads us out of the darkness into the light because we are not children of darkness. We are children of light. Therefore, there is no reason to fear and there is no reason to doubt and no reason to despair. So I ask myself this question, what difference does being a Christian make? After all, we suffer like everybody else suffers. We get sick, we face trouble. We go through the full range of human experiences. Do Christians struggle? Do they? Ask the Christians in China if they know anything about suffering. Ask the Christians in Saudi Arabia what it's like to follow Jesus. Our brothers and sisters around the world face trouble every day because of their faith. And I know 
tonight. No magic verse can remove all your troubles, wipe away your tears, resolve all your conflicts, and bring you quickly out of the furnace. But Jeremiah 29, 11 does do this. It guarantees us God has a purpose. He's got a purpose. We are there for a purpose. It won't last forever. God will be glorified and we will be improved by our furnace time. What difference does being a Christian make? Jesus Christ has died. He has risen from the dead. In his death, he defeated sin. In his resurrection, he defeated death. Our two greatest enemies lie at his feet. Sin and death, he utterly defeated them both. So let me say it to you this way, and I'm done. If we know Jesus, we will have everything we need when we need it. And that means tonight, if you find yourself in the furnace of pain, difficulty, sickness, and loneliness, then it must be true that in some way that we cannot clearly see you are where you are right now because you need to be there right now. That was true for the Jews in Babylon. It's true for you and me. Wherever we have, wherever we happen to be. And you know what? Either we believe that or we don't. If we don't, we are bound to end up unhappy, frustrated, miserable, filled with doubts, given to anger, and prone to seeking quick fixes instead of waiting on the Lord. But if we believe that, if we believe God knows what he's doing even when we don't have a clue, if we believe that, then we'll wait patiently on the Lord, believing Believing. If we believe that through our tears, yes, and with our frustration and our regrets, we will say, Lord, I don't really like it in Babylon, but I know you sent me here, and I know I need to be here, and when you are finished, I will come home. We're not home yet. But we will be soon. Fear not, child of God. No one knows what a day may bring. Who knows if we're even going to make it through this week. But our God is faithful to keep every one of his promises. Nothing can happen to us except it first pass through the hands of a loving God. So tonight, if your way is dark, keep believing and don't give up. What's the big promise? You have a great future. You have a great future. God intends to bring you from where you are to his appointed end. And when he does, you will be glad. When your trial is over, you will say what the saints have said in every age. Jesus led me all the way. Lord, we're glad for this. I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight who are struggling and worried and fearful and doubtful, who feel the flames licking up around them and wonder when their furnace time will be over. Come, Lord, by your Spirit and encourage them. Give them hope. Help them to keep believing and not to turn away. Lord, we thank you that you know what you're doing and you are doing it. We love you. Help help us to trust you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.